And now she has not only been given the money, but the position, the power, a, a, a young romantic husband. He's in harmony with her father. You know, after all of the after all of the arguments of her being caught mm. in the middle between her father-in-law and her father, all of that has has gone away. And so it must have seemed a real fantastic moment at that point. It must mm. have seemed a real, you know, the future must have seemed bright. Welcome to Coronation Catastrophes, a Royal History Geeks podcast commemorating the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. We all know the story of Henry VIII and his matrimonial record, but at the beginning of his reign, all of that lay ahead of him. Born as the second son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York in 1491, Henry, Duke of York, was a spare to his elder brother and heir, Arthur, Prince of Wales. Henry's early life and education befitted that lower-profile position that he was due to inhabit, but Arthur's early death in April 1502 changed all of that, and he took his elder brother's place as Prince of Wales. He is also due to take his elder brother's place as husband to his widow, the Princess Catherine of Aragon, whom Arthur had married not six months before his death. Doctrinal issues because of their close relationship by marriage had been put aside, and the marriage contract signed. But it didn't take place during the lifetime of Henry's father. Instead, Catherine's forced into a rather nomadic existence, neither has Henry's wife, nor fully Arthur's widow. All of that changed in April 1509, when, upon the death of Henry VII, Henry VIII becomes king. And suddenly, all of the obstacles to the marriage taking place are swept aside, and they marry just in time for Catherine to be crowned by his side at Westminster Abbey on the 24th of June. In this episode, we explore the timeline of the path to both the altar and the throne for Henry and Catherine, and we speculate on the reasons why Henry chose to marry his brother's widow only a few weeks before his coronation ceremony. Hello, and welcome to um, our series on Coronation uh, Catastrophes, a Royal History Geeks podcast. Um, this is a series of podcasts commemorating the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla, where we take a little trip down um, memory lane and explore some of the coronations of years gone by. I'm Gareth Streeter, um, creator of Royal History Geeks, and I'm joined, as I will be throughout the duration of this series, by Royal commentator James Taylor. James, how's it going today? All right, Gareth, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I, um, it's funny, because I was... Um, when preparing for this podcast, and I must say you've done most of the work in, in preparation for this, um, I was revisiting a lot of the sources uh, that I looked at when I wrote my biography of um, Arthur, Prince of Wales, who you've already mentioned. So just a little plug and a reminder that now available um, is my is my biography of Arthur. And it was interesting because when you write a book as or do any kind of research, you always, when you look back, think, oh, I wish I just mentioned that bit as well, or I just squeezed that bit. And so it's interesting to go back and revisit. Maybe we can pick up on on some of that today. But no, I am good. I am very good. 
Good. And so this is so this is your chance to to put right any well, I don't want to say deficiencies because I'm sure there are deficiencies <laughs> in your work, but your chance to you know to get those points in that uh, that there were too many for you to to get in in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the that's a healthy way of looking at it. Yes, it's my opportunity to to supplement and expand um the 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 base of knowledge, but it's a it's a funny one. Is it? Do you think I was thinking about this as well? Um because obviously we've always said this this the name of this podcast series um Coronation Catastrophes was lighthearted. And we are not certainly not saying that we think this coronation is going to be a catastrophe. We're all looking forward to a great day. And it's going to be no doubt executed with absolute precision and style. But I was thinking, do you think people, are, I mean, let's face it, we wanted to talk about Henry VIII and the Catherine of Aragon, so we put them in. Do you think people are going to be think we're stretching it a bit by calling this a coronation of catastrophe just because the the consort role got written in quickly? I, I think you're probably right. I, I mean, I wouldn't have called it a catastrophe, but I do think that it had the potential for it, given that everything was done so last minute. I mean, if you think Henry becomes king in April, they're married in June, and the wedding is is only just takes place just before the, the coronation ceremony. I mean, it's uh, they were cutting it down to the wire. That, that they were. And I mean, we were talking in the last episode about how Henry VII uh, probably shocked and disrupted the organisation process once it became clear that he was not going to be married in time for his coronation. And we talked about how Richard III, which they were going to base Henry VII's coronation on that of Richard III, that had the role of the Queen Consort very clearly in it. That would have been the plan everyone was working to. And um, Henry soon makes clear he will not be married by the time of his coronation. So they've got to rewrite the whole ceremony. And we talked a lot about the practical and political ramifications of that in the previous episode so do check it out if you've not yet had chance um and i guess probably from a logistical point of view that was kind of the reverse with henry the eighth because he obviously comes to the throne as a 17 year old single man um we'll talk much more about the history of his you know marital negotiations with catherine of Aragon, no doubt but people were probably expecting him to be single because you wouldn't necessarily expect his marital situation to change in in the few weeks so again they've probably been preparing for a a single coronation just the king not the queen consort and then that all gets thrown up in the air again that would have been a catastrophe for the people that had to actually do these things yeah, I mean, you're right. It is it is essentially Henry VII and Elizabeth of York's story, but in reverse, so that Henry VIII is rushing to get married uh, just so that he can be crowned a married man. And, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about why he might have done that a bit later on. Yes. I mean, the problem with Henry, I don't know if you find this, but the problem with Henry VIII is he... Oh, I think Henry VIII had lots of problems, to be fair. <laughs> no, no, this is the one problem. <laughs> you know, you're right. Okay. What are the problems? With oh, all right. The problem with studying the young Henry VIII, perhaps that's 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 what I should say more properly, um, is that like, Henry VIII is the most famous king of English history. I mean, his, his image, that great sort of Holbein portraiture, is basically the image of English kingship as it's become synonymous in the minds of, 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 of the populace. And as a result, we know all the stories. We know the six wives. We know the brutality of the late years. We know the split with Rome. We know the tyranny, if you want to call it tyranny. Maybe that's a bit of a debate, but I think we're probably on safe ground. And as a result, it's very hard not to look at this situation in 1509 with the young Henry and not infer back all that we later know about. I mean, do you agree? Do you think that's a danger when we're looking at his first? I think 
I think in fairness, I think that's a, a danger when we look at most things in history, because we're, we're coloured not only by the lens of our time, but also by the lens of the sources. Um, and as most of uh, the history of Henry VIII was written, you know, even the history that was written close to that time, but was written through that prism of him as that old bloated tyrant, it, that has in effect coloured most of what we read about him in his young life. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's it's very difficult to keep that. You know, and and yeah. certainly when when I was looking at this, you know, it was constantly trying to to think of Henry and Catherine. And I, mean, I think, in fairness as well, um, it's the same with Catherine of Aragon because you can't think of Catherine. And it, I suppose it was a bit different when you were looking at Catherine and Arthur, um, because you, you could do that without the baggage. But when you're looking at Catherine and Henry, you you're looking through the lens of her as an older woman, her as a someone who you know, all of those mm. miscarriages still, but you know that the the failed maternal record, the uh, the great matter, the the business with Anne Boleyn, you know, all of that is is in your mind. It's difficult to be able to to approach Catherine as a as a young bride to Henry without thinking of of all of those things as well. And of course, there's you know there's so much. Catherine of Aragon is again somebody who polarizes opinion, and she. She's either seen as, as being completely pious or, mm-hmm. you know, and so that she wouldn't ever have, have lied about the virginity and all of that. Or alternatively, she's seen as somebody who is quite ruthless and calculating and, and, and very little in between, I think. Yeah. Rather than just as a human being that, yeah. like most of us, has mixed motivation, mixed personality, mixed morality and is subject to all kinds of uh motivations to act as 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 she acted um no i i mean i agree with that i think so is it worth then just us taking a little a little tour um back through how we get up to 1509 and the the henry and catherine um that we that we end up with in 1509 yeah so where do we start (laughs) to start at the very beginning it's a very Um, good place to start so and you said some of this in your excellent introduction but so henry the eighth as we know the future henry the eighth prince henry the lord henry is born as the second son and third child of henry seventh and elizabeth of york he's born to a pretty unstable england which is slowly becoming more stable under the reign of henry the seventh and it's already clear i mean to coin a phrase henry or Harry, as he was sometimes known as the spare. Um, good, good heavens. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, as we know what that means, that means, you know, smaller bedrooms at the castle and all, all the rest of it. Sorry, that's probably a, a tangent too far, isn't it, for this recording? Well, but, no, but, but in his case, it did mean being in a different location to it, his elder it, brother. It, it did. I mean, so it's really interesting, actually, because sometimes, I mean, you and I both do a lot of history chat on social media. And sometimes I felt that this whole thing that Arthur was taken away and given the kingly training, whereas Henry was very much his mother's son. And, you know, he just sort of played around with his sisters and it was all much more gentle. I've sometimes thought, oh, come on, that's a bit of a lazy trope. Like at the end of the day, Henry was a man of the high or a boy of the high nobility. Mm. Um, He was still going to have been born, um, born and raised to be a knight 
to be a military figure, to be a landowner. He was going to have had that very masculine training. And of course, he was created Duke of York. It's not as though uh, he was just uh, left. At a very young age. Yes. You uh, know, it's uh, not as though he was just left in, in the corner in a castle uh, somewhere. Absolutely not. And and his creation of Duke of York serves a political purpose because it's his father's way. Of, by this point, and now we probably don't have time for this tangent, but by this stage, his father's throne is under threat by the pretender Perkin Warbeck, who is claiming to be... Arthur and Henry's uncle, Richard, Duke of York. So by proclaiming Henry at just three years old as Duke of York, his father, Henry Senior, is saying there's only one Duke of York and it's my boy. The House of York is mine now. I've subsumed the House of York into my empire, into my line of descent. And that and that's what it's symbolizing. So Henry's playing a political role, even though he's too young to understand what a political role is. But it's interesting, as I was doing my research around Arthur's childhood and looking at Arthur's relationship in the context of the first Tudor family, I actually found there was more evidence to support this idea that Arthur and Henry had very stark, starkly different upbringings than I thought there was. Um, David Starkey, has, who's written a lot about um, the young Henry VIII, he actually has found and translated some, some interesting sources that do show um that basically when it comes to some big occasions you've got arthur the eldest hanging out with his dad and meeting the various envoys and and acting very much in his father's shadow then you have henry the younger son very much working with his mother and meeting the same envoys and meeting the same diplomats but doing so with his mother and interestingly when you read the translated versions of those sources in english it reads like it's arthur both times it reads like it's arthur with his dad then arthur goes off with his mum but actually david starkey got the original um, italian sources translated and it's very clear from those translations that it's henry with his mother so actually this sort of trope that comes down to us of arthur was raised with was sent off and raised to be a man and to be a king and was very much his father's son and henry being raised in a more relaxed way with his mother overseeing it and was very much his mother's son there's more i I still expect that's far too binary but there's more to it than i thought there was when i started i mean i mean for example though he was still visited by erasmus and and things you know so there was still the the time and the effort put into his education it's not as though he was just forgotten and, and left to you know, to, to his own devices. Absolutely. I mean, he still has a really rigorous education. He still would have been raised in the knightly pursuits. I mean, the thing the thing that Henry would have enjoyed, which was, was unusual um, to a boy of his classes, he was never sent away. So he was, I mean, he didn't live with his parents, but they were, they were near court and he was with his sisters in the nursery, um, often Elton, but in other places as well. And as far as we know, Arthur was either never there or rarely or, or, or rarely lived there. Arthur may have lived there some of the time before he was six, but he probably never lived there at all, was always separate. Then Arthur was sent off to Ludlow, probably between the age of six or seven. So, And, and we don't know if Henry went and visited him there. But my theory, and this is just sort of my theory, is I don't think Henry Seventh wanted Henry Seventh. sorry, Henry Eighth. well, Prince Henry and Prince Arthur to have that good a familial relationship. And people say, well, that's really odd. Surely he'd want them to get on so they can trust each other. Of course, from Henry VII's perspective, one of the things that got wrong with the House of York was two brothers, Edward IV and Richard III, 
believing they could trust each other more than they could. Mm -hmm. So I think it's possible that Henry VII always wanted there to be some healthy distrust between his two sons so that you didn't end up in a situation like Edward IV did, where he trusted on his deathbed his children into the care of his brother, Richard Duke of Gloucester, who ends up, as the Tudors would have seen it, ends up usurping their throne and, and getting rid of the princes. Obviously, other theories are available to explain the events of 1483, even if they're all wrong. Um, but, you know, they, those those options are out there. Um, just just so, build your colours to the mass there, Roger. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, but... You know, <laughs> Don't no, apologise to me. No, I love, I, I love all Ricardians. And if there are Richard III fans listening, we love you. You make history more interesting. You are welcome here. And this is a safe space, even if I don't agree with all your interpretations on all of history. <laughs> but I, I suppose, well, one thing that I, I just thought of as you were saying that, uh, with them not being close proximity, I mean, that if you, you know, looking at the history of the princes in the tower, um, they were not in the same location, but the fact that they ended up in the same location ended up being their downfall. Um, yeah, and I suppose yeah. that by keeping Henry and Arthur separate, if the either the, the Warbeck rebellion or another rebellion is taking place, with Arthur being in Ludlow and Henry being at court or near court, at least then that would have made it far more difficult to be able to, to capture them both. I think you're 100% right. I mean, Henry VII was the most strategic operator ever. Um, I mean, he based a lot of it on the stuff Edward IV did, but he was, he was just that bit better, I think, and that bit more strategic. So basically, people often talk about Arthur's court uh, on the Welsh border being a training, a train, a government in training. And to an extent, that is true, but it was more like a government in waiting. Literally, if Henry VII had dropped dead or Perkin Warbeck had marched on Westminster and Henry VII had died, all of a sudden, Arthur's government would have been able to spring into immediate action. And people would just start pledging temporarily, of course, their fealty to Ludlow rather than to London. And Arthur would have been able to start executing his role as King of England straight away. He had all the infrastructure. The fact Henry... Prince Henry is also somewhere separate, is an, is an added string to that bow or a feather to that cap. He's also there should anything happen to Arthur. So you've got these these three men in, in slightly different locations and, and able to... It's a bit like, um, supposedly, you'll, you'll know this better than I will. The rumour is, I don't know if this is true, that people close in line to the throne today are not meant to share flights. And supposedly Diana broke that protocol by taking William and Harry. Is that actually true or is that a myth? Uh, oh, I think that's oh, it's partly true and partly myth. I think uh, they're not supposed to. But having said that, you do see them not so much in flights, but you do see them traveling cars together, for example. Mm. So the extent to which it's a hard and fast rule, uh, I would question. Uh, and certainly in the last year, there were rumors that uh, that the late Queen was unhappy because um, because Prince William had taken Prince George on a flight with him rather than right. on a separate flight. So it, it is one of those things that is constantly brought up. But I think that it's one of those things that the it can be compromised for the sake of expediency or for the sake of, of having to make arrangements. So mm -hmm. well, the extent to which it's true, I think is probably debatable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I thought that was probably the case, but I knew you would if anyone I knew if anyone would know you would know. <laughs> Um, so I should probably we should probably get back to our to Catherine of Aragon, shouldn't we? And get get her entering the story. So you know, whistle stop tour. Arthur, Prince of Wales, and Catherine of Aragon are betrothed ish. You you can't technically betroth infants. All you can do is commit all the parents because believe it or not, the church didn't actually accept 
um you know parents being able to marry their kids on their behalf although clearly that is what was happening but they had to so they had to use language around we will we will endeavor to persuade our children to marry each other when they reach a certain age etc etc but yeah from the cradle arthur and catherine of aragon are ple- uh, are um pledged in marriage to one another there's lots of ups and downs it's broken off for about five years negotiations don't really get back on track until the late um 1490s and then eventually in 1501 catherine comes over to england technically speaking her and arthur are already married because they've married by proxy but it's not enough she comes to england it's a great moment of triumph for the tudor dynasty because catherine's family are the emerging superpowers of europe henry the seventh is still a fledgling king that this throne was at risk by a complete outsider a complete nobody a complete fraud probably um so this is a great moment of security saying we've been accepted we're part of the european power base we're we're the we're in the cool gang now and no one's going to threaten us so catherine comes in triumph yeah she ends up in the wrong place but she comes in triumph she marches with you parades through england has this great reception goes into this awesomely huge charles and diana style high profile wedding in st paul's cathedral Yes. And in the same location, not quite the same church, we know, but in the same yeah. location. Yes. Yes. Um, exactly. In November 1501. Now, it was unusual, wasn't it, in in that period for such a, a huge wedding with all the panoply of state to take place and like that, isn't it? Yeah, no, it was. I mean, we're accustomed now to royal weddings being a big deal. And basically in every generation, we expect one absolute, you know, um, sort of kick-ass royal wedding like Charles and Diana William and Catherine. I can't say I've and, heard that description before. <laughs> well, they were. And then we normally expect a more sort of low-key but quite but quite spectacular, quite nice royal wedding like Edward and Sophie or um Harry and Meghan, you know, which were both lovely, lovely occasions. Um but that but weddings then, they weren't private in the sense that you only you only bothered to have a wedding ceremony because you needed to have witnesses so there were clearly people there people needed to know it happened but they weren't generally a great spectacle none of henry the eighth as far as we know were were a great spectacle um so really arthur and catherine's wedding was the 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 greatest royal wedding that tudor england would would ever know and it's a moment of and it's a huge moment of triumph for the family i mean they even have the the stage they get married on at St Paul's is is even raised so that everyone can definitely see them and then afterward and this feels this feels quite House of Windsor populist but afterward they 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 go out to the east and then they go out to the west and people cry King Henry Prince Arthur and they cheer to the crowds and it is a very very well orchestrated um piece of propaganda i suppose um i mean maybe that's a slightly harsh way of looking at it but it is a moment of triumph and absolutely everybody is going to be compelled to watch it i must say having stood outside st paul's after different royal events or been there uh, or certainly seeing uh i'm sitting there in, in windsor when prince harry to it, I, I, i'm sure i'd have liked that i should i'm sure i would have liked the the fact that they gave people the opportunity to see them although if i'd been there i wouldn't have had my camera in 1501 so i'm not sure that it would have been you, you wouldn't have had your camera but you'd have had memories you'd have never have forgotten um yeah. and that i mean if you think how little access people had to that kind of display and it wasn't just the day i mean london had been filled with the most detailed pageantry and i sort of had to go through the contemporary council not writing the arthur book and it's very hard to get your head around because it's loaded with symbolism around astrology 
and sort of the belief systems that were very important to Henry VII and indeed sort of humanists of, of the time. But it's it's a proper party for all Henry VII's reputation as a sort of spendthrift miser, which is not is not completely unjustified. Um, but he knew how to have a party when we needed a party, and well, the he knew were on him. he was strategic with it, wasn't he? He knew when there would be added value. Exactly, exactly, and it sounds great fun. I mean, there's there's brilliant dancing. There's um there's clearly there's a lot of feasting i mean <laughs> you just sort of, you feel a bit ill when you sort of read through what's in each of the seven courses and i'm not very good with one of the things i'm not good at with history is i'm not very good at things like the fashion and the food and sort of remembering what the culinary habits were like but it's it's enough to know it was lavish and no expense but, was spared does it make you feel almost ill thinking you know another meal another feast another banquet well it does a bit um and also the precedence with had you basically had to eat in order of precedence probably not so formally for all seven courses but you know you've got to depending and i'm actually I'm, i can't remember the wedding this happened it might not have but at a really official thing like the ceremony before um a, a night of the bath nighting you had to wait till the king was finished <laughs> before you could eat as well so I, I, that must have been awful for the people waiting but also must have been quite high pressure if you were the king or the queen because you've got to scoff it all days, out so everyone else could have some because these days the opposite isn't it because when the when the, the monarch has has finished that's when other people's plates are you know they're all, all the plates are taken away as soon as as soon as that happens so that's so when uh, when the queen mother was alive and you know she was elderly and didn't eat quite as much she mm. would always have a salad and she would also sort of play with it until right. until other people were ready because otherwise if she had put her knife and fork down that meant that her plate would be taken away but it mean everybody else's plate would be taken away. right 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 <laughs> funny world we live in isn't it funny funny old world and, and let's not get into the, the whole thing about finger bowls and, and washing hands and, and whether that would be the test whether you were really in the know or not um but back to Henry and uh, and Catherine, or, or certainly Catherine and Arthur's wedding. Mm. The future Henry VIII, he he stole the show, didn't he? He does a bit. He so Henry. I mean, I don't know if have you ever seen the the Spanish Princess TV show? You had to ask me that question, didn't you? I didn't have to, but I chose to. <laughs> yes, I've seen it. Yes, you've seen it. So, what what were your thoughts on it, James? Before I volunteer mine. Um, hmm. You know, earlier I said about looking through uh, the lens of history through through modern eyes. Mm. I think that the Spanish princess is a is a perfect example of where someone has done that, and mm. they've done it with a particular purpose and a particular viewpoint in mind, with little regard to authenticity. Yeah, I think that's. Um... That's a fair summary. I mean, fiction is fiction. Different people have different views on how literal fiction should be. I'm actually quite liberal on, don't say that very often, but on the issue of, uh, you know, people should be able to... Um, so we quote on this, Gareth Streeter is a liberal. <laughs> Maybe not. But um, I think the problem... So basically, the Spanish princess wants to have a love triangle between Catherine... <coughs> excuse me. Catherine, Henry, and Arthur. And so it portrays Arthur and Henry... As, oh, as as being of closer age. Um, but as you've already said... Well, Henry looks a lot older than Arthur. Well, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how old they're meant to be, but they look like they're both late teens. Yes. You're right, Henry could be early 20s. And obviously that's because the actor they cast has to go through the duration of being basically into his 30s because of the role, the 
the the length they wanted the show to go on for whereas arthur drops dead in you know, halfway through episode two or whatever but as, but as you know for anybody who's not seen it <laughs> oh yeah well I, i'm sorry arthur dies it can't cannot be the biggest spoiler <laughs> out there i'm afraid if anyone's listening to this podcast it's gonna go shock horror prince arthur dies and and that's ruined your love of history then then probably then we feel sorry you, for you. yeah <laughs> anyway so you've already said arthur was born in 1486 henry is born in 1491 so he's he's basically he's he's four and a half years younger than arthur so at this stage henry is 10 and although he was already tall for his age, as was Arthur, and big, you know, he's he's going to be coming across as a child. But anyway, he is, he Catherine first meets him um, when he escorts her from basically from Lambeth to Lambeth Palace, where she's staying, to the city of London, uh, and he leads inverted commas leads because he's only ten. The English delegation that meets her there and takes her to the to this wonderful set of pageantry that that's going to await her much of which she probably could understood because as far as we could tell she didn't speak much english at this stage so henry's got his role there he also um has a role pre- uh, processing into the church in st paul's ahead of the wedding and then in there's days of feasting afterward and i must off the top of my head i can't remember which day but one day there is some dancing you have this sense that Arthur, who does dance with his aunt, um, Princess Cecily, does everything in quite a conservative and quite a controlled, dignified way. And at one point, Prince Henry, the Duke of York, who's dancing with his sister, Princess Margaret, he throws off his overcoat, you know, and starts dancing, you know, in a spirited entertaining way to which his parents applaud you know they're not cross they're not angry they applaud and you so you get a sense and it is only a sense of henry's our fun son do you know what i mean arthur we're pouring the you know that expression um that supposedly george the sixth said yes yeah we'll say the expression you say it better than i will you'll say it better than i well, he used to. Well, it's said to have said, and we we don't yeah. actually know that he said it. That uh, Elizabeth's my pride and Margaret's my joy. And the funny thing is, because I was thinking when you say that, there was almost exactly the same age gap between Arthur and Henry as there right. was between Elizabeth and Margaret as well. Exactly. And and very similar sort of personality types. In as much as Elizabeth was um, the the dutiful one, she's the one that has the constitutional history lessons from the Vice Provost mm-hmm. of Eton. Uh, Margaret is the one that has, you know, seen as much more more fun, more lighthearted. Although we must say that Princess Margaret, like Henry, was still a very intelligent person and mm, had, mm. you know, well, it's questionable that the standard of education that they had actually given that they were educated merely by by governesses was quite mm. typical for for aristocratic girls in the in that you know in the, the in the late twenties and, and during the thirties and into the forties. But again, you know, very intelligent person. And also for all her hedonism, Princess Margaret was also somebody who was who was very religious and, and mm. wrote her own prayers and things. So there are actually quite a few parallels between Arthur, Elizabeth, yeah, Margaret yeah. and, and I mean, it is to be fair on the Duke of Sussex, it is a bit of an heir and a spare paradigm, isn't it? I mean, it you kind of see how I mean, older children tend to be more responsible and diligent, all those things anyway. But yes, when one knows they've got a weighty job on them and the other one knows they've got to find, to an extent, find their own role, but could be a bit more relaxed about it. 
it, it kind of makes sense you're going to get that sort of divergence of personality uh, but it's just it's just not always quite that extreme is it I, and and henry did have quite a defined role there's a lot people sometimes say that henry was being prepared to go into the church which seems incredibly unlikely given he was made duke of york but he would have had a role being prepared for him probably marriage to a wealthy heiress and a big landowner probably in the north i, say, I can't i mean and this again is, is looking through the lens of, of what we know of henry but i can't imagine him as, as um leading the life of a cardinal no i don't think anyone ever thought he would because the other thing although we always talk about henry not being expected to become king which is absolutely true they weren't stupid and they did know that life was very fragile in Tudor times. And they did know that there were particular periods of vulnerability. So the first three years of life, but also adolescence was, was a period of quite, so no one is expecting Arthur to die. It, it did happen. So the idea that they were going to cast Henry off into a position where he couldn't have been eligible to succeed or have children and bolster the Tudor dynasty that way, I, I think is, is slightly maddening. Yeah. I agree. I, I I think that it would have, it, and also it's that would not have been, and also it just wasn't typical that royal princes went into the church. I, I mean, I know that we had, um, you know, one of um, Elizabeth of, of York's younger sisters became a nun. Was yeah. it Bridget became a but nun? But they had so many um, daughters. Yes. Well, they, they did have so many daughters, but also, you know, and I know that that people hold their hands up in horror, that it's not much of a revelation that, that boys were treated rather differently to girls in that yes. respect. Yes, and there's they had a lot of daughters, and they uh, and it was it was not uncommon in in big high nobility families that felt they'd been blessed with children. Not not all were, of course, to the same extent to give one back, basically to give one back to God, to give one back to the church, and 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 of course financially. <laughs> You know, it's quite a lot, even if you're very rich, to sustain that many princesses. So you can get the church. I mean, and they they made donations. Um, I can't remember. I can't remember which abbey it was that that um, that that the youngest daughter went to. But they made donations. But you know, there's a financial aspect to it as well. But yeah, I, I just don't see that with Henry. But yes, you do get him. I guess. I guess really, he's making his first debut into public affairs in Arthur's wedding. So. I always think with Catherine, Catherine of Aragon must have, and I know we shouldn't psychoanalyze people of the past too much. She must have been an incredibly romantic figure in his life. His first big day is meeting her, basically. She's this exotic woman, older, you know, and he's at the age where boys. Six years between them, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, boys would idol worship girls of that age, particularly this exotic princess, particularly the one that's pledged to his brother that he can never have and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's not, we don't know what he's feeling, but it's not hard to imagine those are the sorts of feelings he's beginning to associate with her. And of course, you know, that's his, that's his big first public appearance too I, I know he i know it wasn't the first time he'd ever appeared in public but it's the first yeah. big public appearance and at the age of 10 he's old enough now to to appreciate it and to remember it mm. and so I, th I suppose that she is caught up in all of that with him because it's her wedding that he you know he's first seen on the the stage by you know by by the populace let's say right exactly and he could yes i mean he'd had a big day when he was knighted into the order of the bath and made duke of york when he was about three but he, he this is the first time he can play any, any kind of independent role yeah. you know and take any kind of 
responsibility not that he would have been he would still have been quite protected quite sheltered there's a there's very senior both churchmen and members of the nobility with him when he goes to meet catherine but he can he can he's useful he is useful in a way his he always represented something that was useful the new duke of york but now he could be something else that's a bit more useful so no i i mean i completely i completely agree with that i mean i suppose we should talk at some stage about how henry and um catherine end up being betrothed to each other shouldn't yes because um because arthur and catherine's story didn't end happily ever after i doubt there's much happiness in it at any stage to be honest i write about this in my arthur book i mean arthur kind of sees this really awkward as hell first meeting with catherine of aragon but they can't really communicate and henry the seventh has just been the most embarrassing dad ever by like barging in and insisting that catherine basically gets out of bed and comes down to meet them to the sort of scandal of all the the spanish envoys and all the rest of it so it's always a horrible meeting then they actually wear the veil to meet them because that's no she didn't no is that apocryphal she well i don't think her attire is seen is described in detail when she meets them but she is at rest when she gets there and they're like we can't possibly see and they've been trying to put him off and off and off from seeing her until the wedding which is getting him paranoid i think as he was he was um inclined toward paranoia anyway and he basically he says well i'm the king the goods. yeah i'm the king and you know physical as as we were talking about earlier the whole point of catherine coming and having this big spectacle is that it's a piece of pr I mean, more than that, it's it's a it's a piece of imagery that symbolises the rise of the Tudors. So if she's got some terrible scar or some big disfigurement, that's not to say it's going to stop, but it's going to need to be managed, and that needs advance warning. So Henry's like, I'm going to see her. I am the king. You can't stop me seeing... I can see anyone in this country if I want to. And, and there's a big debate, and the Spanish are like... Um, no, you no way we're letting you see Catherine um, because that's improper. And Ferdinand is Ferdinand and Isabella are very, very cautious because they know what happened with Richard III when he pretended that his brother hadn't been married and therefore the prince of the tower weren't weren't legally, lawfully legitimate or princes. So, and, and everyone's really scared of England after this because they're like, well, England always moved the goalposts on marriage. So they didn't want there to be any suggestion that Arthur and Catherine w- weren't married in the fullest sense. So they didn't really want them spending much time together pre the big ceremony so that they couldn't be accused of having, I don't know, say she got pregnant beforehand or something and that child not being legitimate, etc., etc. And probably the Spanish officials with catherine were over interpreting um their orders and were trying to completely keep them apart until they were in the church together so they're saying no you can't see catherine and henry's like i kind of can because i'm the king and if i want to i can do it and they're like no well we're not gonna let you he's like oh i'll tell you what let's go to someone impartial let's summon all my counselors and they could they can rule on this because you know they're impartial they're they're (laughs) impartial and um the counselor's like you know what king henry we actually agree with you what heavens who'd have thought that i know we think you are lord and emperor in your own realm and can do whatever you like so after this lovely you can order the 16 year old princess from her bed to see you immediately so he goes around um to where she's staying she's at fleet and he's like march down he sends arthur to wait well he goes and sort of smooths it over you know embarrassing dad of the century goes in 
and it's like i'd like to see the princess and they're like well she's at rest so you can't and then he says i will see the princess even if she is in bed and that the 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 notes of scandal kind of can still be felt from that can't they i mean it's it's a little bit like us saying oh you know i'll see her if she's in the shower kind of thing it's that kind of yeah um brave and 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 let's not forget now it'd be bad luck to see the uh the bride and groom see each other before the well the night before the wedding yes this wasn't quite the night before but i think that was the sort of sentiment the spanish were coming with and different customs etc etc um so they see catherine arthur comes it's really awkward because they can't really communicate um do a bit of dancing um and one of um one of arthur's governesses or, or one of the women that helped with the royal children um she was a bit of a linguist so she came and she helped translate one of the spanish bishops was was good at translating their latin they'd written very well they they communicate very well in latin and less I was just about to say because they did both know latin didn't they it, you know it's not as though they didn't have a language in common so there's different theories on this some think that catherine and arthur would just have learned very different pronunciations because of the different accents of the latin words i think it's probably just teenage nerves i I don't think it has to be more complicated than that i mean like literally i mean obviously whenever you read these texts they leave some bits that's you imagine bits but i just i just i just felt when i was first reading the accounts of their meeting i felt like i was a 15 year old boy again um Oh, I wasn't very interested in 15-year-old girls, but I sort of pretended to be, and that was awkward too. And I just sort of felt saturated in that teenage, awful, angsty awkwardness. Um, and I, maybe I'm imposing a bit of on it, but it was horrible. It's a horrible. So I don't think Arthur and Catherine will love at first sight. Then they have this grand wedding, which they're both exhausted from. Um, Arthur seems to have to do less in the day surrounding it than Catherine partly because Catherine's the star of the show and partly because I suspect Arthur was already getting quite ill and tiring easily. They're then, they have another awful, they have an awful couple of weeks um, at court with the King and Queen where Henry again is like dad, embarrassing dad times the power of 10 by getting embroiled in this silly little scheme to try and trick um, Catherine's parents into handing over more money by pretending effectively that Catherine had used her plate and you know and and therefore they needed some money to cut and it's really underhand I love Henry VII by the way but this is a really underhand sort of embarrassing moment Arthur is just one assumes mortified but manages to smooth it over Henry's very unsure as to whether Catherine should go to Ludlow with Arthur, probably because he's already worried about Arthur's health. Arthur pushes for it. Catherine goes. And they spend a horrible, rainy, wet, cold, inclement few months in Ludlow, where I think Arthur was probably quite ill. That's debated. Then Arthur, Arthur kicks the bucket, and she's like, "What do I do? What do I do now?" What, well, what does she do now? Because she's, you know, she's in a bit, well, I mean, in a sense, it looks as though quite quickly after Arthur's death, you know, after they have made sure that she's not expecting a, another heir. Um, yeah, that, that it's unclear as to how much they but, really thought she might be expecting an heir, because a lot of that comes from later. Yeah, later yeah. Sources. but once, it, once that is definitely clear, that that we then go into the negotiations for her to marry Henry. Yeah, yeah, and that she, but she's in 
a rather sort of invidious position because she's Arthur's widow. Mm. She's not married to Henry yet. Mm. And she's so she's neither one nor the other, really. She's in a horrible position because not only is she in that exact limbo that you've just stated, she's all real pawn between her parents and her father-in-law who even by the standard of the day are both pretty duplicitous in their negotiation style. So um, Catherine's mother, Isabella, when she hears of Arthur's death, when the letters are just, I mean, it's like, oh, very upset. This is awful. Reminds me of my own son dying. Very, very sad. Anyway, so I'm going to send an ambassador because they sort of lost trust with the ambassador that was resident in England with good cause. Um, I'm going to send an ambassador and your instructions are twofold. You're to go to the king and you can demand Catherine comes back immediately. You hand over the money we've already paid. You hand over that dowry, and she comes back to England. We say no, sorry, to Spain, and we say no more about it. Goodbye, England. Then she's like to her ambassador, but you know, really, your actual job is to negotiate a um, a, a a marriage between Hen um, Catherine and the new Prince of Wales, Henry, uh, the man we know as Henry VIII. So there's already all this kind of politics going on. And what's important to remember is all the way through the negotiations between Catherine and Arthur, England are the chaser, Spain are the powerful, you know, Spain are like the hot kind of sexy country that people want to team up with. And England's like a bit of a six out of 10. And it's kind of like, mm, yeah, maybe. But, th but there's been a bit of role reversal because the politics of Europe have gone against Spain. Probably not worth going into all that now. Um, and actually, they but certainly really on a personal them. level, it soon changes, doesn't it? With with Isabella's death, well, that that does come a bit later, um, because then Catherine's only connected to half a kingdom and the poor relation bit of it, anyway. But yeah, but the politics of Europe are going against Spain. They want allies. They need England. So it's like get this treaty signed to their ambassador because they need England on board. Bit of role reversal. And so just looking then at, at Catherine and the position that, that she's in, there's been a lot written and a lot suggested about her financial situation, mm. um, because that's certainly part of, uh, becomes a large part of the, the correspondence between England and Spain at the time. Mm -hmm. Is she really as poor as all that? You know, is she really in penury, stuck in Durham House or at court? and, you know, unable to support her household. The money with <laughs> Catherine of Aragon's financial situation is quite confused after Arthur's death, and indeed at any point before she becomes queen, because the, the marriage negotiation with Arthur committed um, her, her jointure, what what women were, you know, as, as we all know of women of... The, of royalty or the high nobility or even lower nobility of any money really when they married their parents were generally responsible for providing a dowry a one-off sum of money either in terms of cash or in terms of property or or a, a, any other equivalencies to uh well i'm not quite sure what the origins of it were but anyway it's a payment to the family or to the to the man what she brings to the marriage in return she's given a jointure from the estate of her husband which she will enjoy either it will fund her during her life but the main part of it is if 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 she if she is widowed she then enjoys 
she has she has a command over uh, over degree normally typically a third between a fifth and a third of her late husband's estate which she can enjoy for the rest of her lifetime and and support herself and that that's honored in Catherine's marriage negotiation in that she's entitled to a third one third share in the revenues of Cornwall Arthur's Duke of Cornwall Chester Arthur's Earl of Chester and Wales Arthur's Prince of Wales interestingly Catherine well Catherine's parents Ferdinand and Isabella their main ambassador du Puebla who negotiates most of it is a bit lazy and that becomes apparent later and he's not actually really checked how much money that gives her they've negotiated that as a principle and, and there's a there's a slightly snappier better ambassador that comes over fairly soon before Catherine well, a couple, uh, sort of a year or so before Catherine actually departs from Spain and he looks at the sums and is like it's not actually that much in the event of Arthur dying and there's hints in his letter that actually Arthur dying could be a real possibility because he ain't, he ain't that well as the ambassador finds so actually we're not sure whether Catherine ever gets given that money whether that money is sufficient and whether she has to then give it back as part of her arrangement to marry prince henry which gets negotiated pretty soon so we're not we're not it's not quite clear what is clear is that catherine at various points feels she's very underfunded and is going to have to consider um basically going to have to consider um selling her plate jewelry basically gold um in order to fund her household and it's not clear she tells her father that and it's not quite clear whether she's doing that to kind of trigger her dad because basically the big dispute between her father and her father-in-law is henry's that henry VII is saying you owe me money because you owe me the second installation of the dowry um i see do you think do you think we should give people because you've got a pretty good steer on what the dowry was do you think we need to give people a bit more information on it rather than me just sort of wittering on um yeah and so <laughs> well there were several stages of payments when there were several so there was there was um there was the element that would be paid in cash at uh, yeah. or cash, but you know, in in money at the time of the wedding. You know, that made it sound like used five as an envelope for in cash, but you know, it, that is yeah. that they that they're going to pay in in money, and um, whether it's and and again, that there's a debate later about the currency in which it would would be paid, but that you know they've negotiated that, and then there is the part as you've just said, which was which was paid in plate and jewels, and they were yeah. there were also different stages at which they were to be paid. They weren't all paid at once, unlike a lot of dowries where you know in in cultures where they have dowries today, where there would be one payment at the beginning of the wedding, or that there would be, as you say, the equivalency in property or or in uh, or in uh, or in property. Um, Whereas there, it was you know there were several different stages and it was several different means yeah. in order to in order to accomplish that payment. And, and the reason it sounds confusing is because it's deliberately let. Well, it's kind of fudged in the marriage negotiations because this is a sticking point all the way through. How much are the Spanish going to pay in terms of the dowry, and what form is it going to come? And then at sometimes they get really pernickety about okay well you can pay this percentage of it in jewels but does that mean they're jewels that the princess is allowed to use um i.e are her basically her parents paying for some of kitting her out in style that she'll need to be or should those jewels be surrendered to henry upon her arrival and then he can give them back to her or not as he sees fit and that's deliberately left i well yeah. say deliberately left ambiguous it's fudged to get it over the line and, and one thing which i wasn't sure which you you may know better than me 
is does jewels actually mean jewellery as in does it mean gemstones or is that a generic term in the in in the same way that armor wasn't necessarily just coat you know a suit of armor it could mean other sort of accoutrement that went with the armor this is where we need nicola tallis with us to give us chapter and verse on on royal jewellery which i wouldn't say i'm any kind of expert on but the term as you said in in the treaty is plate and jewellery which is certainly quite generic um but it's certainly clear at some point that the spanish are arguing that what they need to kit catherine out in which will be much close to jewellery as you and i would understand it should be offset against her marriage portion payments so and the english are never quite sure as to whether they agree with that and that's something that happens in catherine's first few weeks in england then henry VII seems to move on because it causes a bit of a diplomatic instant which is quite embarrassing it makes henry look like he's poor in the eyes of catherine and he hates that embarrassment so he backtracks but when catherine is saying later on i may have to sell my plate she knows what she's saying is quite triggering to her dad because if that plate represents not entirely clear whether it does but whether that represents part of her marriage portion then her father almost certainly would unambiguously owe henry some money because she sold what was sort of meant to be his even it was in her keeping so that so which is one of the reasons why we're not quite sure how sincere catherine is being when she pleads poverty there or whether she is saying look dad you've got to take some initiative get this problem sorted get my status sorted so i've got a bit of security or else (laughs) i'm going to play dirty i'm going to land you in some hot water it's just but but one thing that is clear is regardless of um regardless of exactly what her financial situation is catherine is in limbo the negotiation for the marriage to henry takes place pretty quickly but they're going to have to wait till henry's at least 14 so there's a few always going to be a few years delay and only and and the spanish don't really care about the immediate because they just want to secure the alliance so and then of course as you've already alluded we get the death quite soon of queen isabella which yeah i mean do you want to talk you probably you you probably a bit better well versed in that well i would just say that the death of queen isabella does mean that that does mean that Catherine is slightly less of an attractive prospect as Henry's wife at this stage. But not just because that means that she's only Ferdinand's daughter, which means that Aragon was the, the sort of junior partnership in, mm. in modern Spain. Spain is only united at this stage through the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella, because Isabella was Queen of Castile, mm. Ferdinand was King of Aragon. And although they they had a joint monarchy in that they both signed state papers of, of each country and things like that. And, and certainly when war was waged, it was war uh, waged against uh, both of them. And, and obviously they both had carried out the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the conquest of, of Spain and, and uh, taken it from, from the Moors. There, it was still only that that union was not a political union, was a, was a personal union. Yes. And so that meant that at that stage, when Isabella dies, Ferdinand has no other claim over Castile. Right. He's only king of Aragon. So there, and Aragon is very much the junior partner in that in that alliance. So yes. that means that Catherine is a much less of a an attractive prospect politically anyway. Yeah. But also the fact that her sister, uh Juana, later known mm-hmm. as Juana the Loca, uh John the Mad, um, there is quite a lot of, of infighting because of her um husband 
uh, Philip of Burgundy. And so the, in, there's infighting between between Philip and Ferdinand. And so yeah. when so therefore, there's on the certainly on the Spanish side on, on Ferdinand's side, Catherine is. I don't want to say exactly forgotten because I don't want to say he's exactly forgotten his daughter, but she certainly moved well down the list of his priorities. So, so Catherine, yeah. it seems at this stage is is nobody's priority really. She's not a priority for Henry the Seventh. She's not yep. a priority yep. for her own father. So, therefore, you know, she. So, the extent to which she's actually stuck in penury is, is debatable, and mm. and I know you know we 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 can't be sure whether she was ever going to receive the revenues that that right. uh, that she'd originally been entitled to but but certainly she she doesn't she's not in in receipt of them at this point and so therefore she's she doesn't seem from what we can understand to have an independent source of income other than the, the plate the jewelry which you know could have been a diplomatic ploy but even so she she seems to have very she she seems to just have very few options at this stage and doesn't seem to be anybody's real worry anybody's real priority you can't help but feel sorry for her hugely sorry for her i mean and just on, on a point of detail as well just to make matters worse catherine's got no claim on the throne of aragon because she wasn't born in aragon so and you have to be there's some flexibility around it as we see with the ultimate succession of her sister but but she she does have a claim to the throne of castile which makes her more valuable but as castile is clearly getting swallowed up into this Habsburg mass imperial mass that's 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 getting taken away that's getting taken off the table so catherine's not any longer really in the line of succession anywhere that just lowers her status that that much more um and that means also, you've got the fact that 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 Juana is is married um she and Philip have gone on to to produce children so therefore you know she's even if she were in line to inherit um Castile or even Aragon the chances of her becoming queen are are quite remote they're, not impossible given remote. you know everything we've said about Arthur but it, they're, they're not it's not likely but very remote because and and um Huana's probably only accepted as the heir to Aragon as a woman not born there because she has a son yeah. so and Catherine doesn't even have that at this well unfortunately Catherine of course never has that but she doesn't have that to bring to the table either so I think your summary of she's no one's priority she's a reduced asset which is a cold thing to say but this was a marriage market let's let's remember and so she's 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 harder to marry overseas um elsewhere so she's got she's she's got far less going for her than she had and she's in a situation where she's we don't know how well she's physically looked after and there are some people there fighting her corner a little bit more and giving her some help but she's isolated we know that her household start fighting um and she's not really old and senior enough to negotiate between um, she's senior enough on paper but not an experience to negotiate between that the king doesn't want to know because he's like it's kind of a spanish thing like your servants not really under my control so i'm not going to help you sort that out i um uh, and her father doesn't really care because out of sight, out of mind. And eventually her father answers one of her pleas and sends her a confessor from Spain to help guide her oh, spiritually. Yes. And the way I think that we would read those sources suggests that that confessor is not very helpful. I was just going to say that that's that's a whole other kind of ones in it. But the, the, I think we can describe them as infamous, Fray Diego. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, I, I, one can't help, and I, again, this is probably very wrong of me, but one can't help but think of him as a kind of Rasputin-type figure. Mm, mm. That's a good you know, analogy. 
well he's he's very controlling of Catherine isn't he and he doesn't he tries to uh, make her avoid seeing the the English royal family as much as possible and yeah, he's yeah. he's controlling about who she meets and where she goes and because and I think that he and the, the reason that I think the Rasputin analogy is is quite fair is because it's not just based on normal control it's based through spirituality it's based through that you know it, yes that, that relationship is forged in the confessional yes. when she is at her most vulnerable when she can mm. say the things that she is that really are you know the most intimate thoughts that she has mm -hmm. so and so therefore he has that hold on her whereas most other people even even the spanish nobility who you know, i know at this point she doesn't have many many other uh, spaniards around her but but even they would not be privy to those those really yep. sort of private thoughts and those secrets of her soul, if you like. I, I know that sounds rather dramatic, but I think that it's it's fair it's to exactly, say. It's exactly what it is. And and he's yeah. someone that seems to know the power that gives him. And in many senses, and I, I know we need to be careful about using 21st or 20th or 21st century language in a 16th century context, but he does appear to have all the hallmarks of... If, if, if we can believe the sources, because that's the only thing I would yeah. say is he's unpopular with other Spanish people, and those other Spanish people are, what, are the people that are describing his behaviour back to the king. So we have to take a little bit with a pinch of salt, because there there could be bias, well, there's always biases in the sources, but they could be doing a bit of character assassination. But if we can broadly take our description, th those descriptions of his behaviour as anything resembling face value, yeah. and he has the hallmarks of a classic gaslighter, because as you've said, he uses his authority over someone who is vulnerable and is alone. He uses his authority to control her behaviour, um, to tell her she's evil, which he does, and confessors had some legitimacy in telling everyone about their inherent fallen nature but he well, tells we're, we're all sinners aren't we <laughs> we're all sinners but he does that in ways like she's evil she needs to be dependent on him for spiritual redress um he controls her behavior he says you're not allowed and there's this very famous incident where he said no you're ill yesterday so you're not allowed to go out with princess mary today i'm telling you i don't care if the king's told you you're going out i'm telling you you're not um causing a scene uh, isolating her even further from the few people that could constitute anything resembling a support network. So she's totally under his power. To what degree that carries on, we don't know. And, and maybe it's not as extreme as, as, as one of his Spanish rivals makes out it is. But it's something that shows how vulnerable and alone Catherine has become by the point he enters her life as we're getting toward the late the late first decade of the 1500s. I think it's fair to say that even if we don't know the extent to which he was a malign influence, he certainly does have a certain, he certainly has a degree of control over her, which nobody else has at this point. Mm. Yes. And, and, and inadvertently her father and her further father-in-law who should have been her greatest protectors have created a set of circumstances that's allowed that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was certainly no love loss between the English and the Spanish. I mean, uh, the one thing that that did strike me looking at the, the Spanish letters is the descriptions that they used for each other. I mean, they're, they're mm. not, not only do they not like each other, but they don't try and address it up with diplomatic language. Now, now I do appreciate that that there was the language barrier so that the one side would not be, well, firstly, they wouldn't be likely mm. to see uh, each other's dispatches, but equally even if they did, they wouldn't understand them. However, 
it still seems to me quite uh, fantastic that they had that they used such undiplomatic language about mm -hmm. each side. Well, well, certainly that the Spanish did around the English, and that they did it with such. They, they had seemed to have no regard for the fact that they could be intercepted or that they could be somebody mm -hmm. who would be able to translate them. Or you know, I, I just find it fantastic that they that they didn't think that anything could go wrong and it could be, or perhaps they wanted that. Perhaps they wanted it to be as public, but you know, it, it they, seems, yeah. it sort of seems to me that they're not playing the game. Well, we, we know of course that um, letters of this sort of era do get stolen because one of the reasons we know something about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn's love affair, if you can call it that, is because those letters that I think, Henry wrote I to think Anna in the best to say a love affair, but you know, you might say a lot yeah. else about it. But I think it's fair no. to say there was passion involved. Indeed, I mean, with the with the Spanish letters, we have to be a little bit careful because we're what we're reading are actually summaries that the Victorians created. So some of the bluntness may be because it's a summary. Um, but even so, as you say, and the Spanish, what I love about the Spanish, they're quite brazen. With um, here's your orders to their ambassador but really your orders are this so yes. tell henry this but really do this in that sense you're right they don't beat around the bush um they're they're quite happy. and then of course they have they cry oh henry's been so deceptive uh, isn't he terrible it's like well, do you remember what you just said to your ambassador <laughs> you know i mean let, let, you know you know pots and kettles and all the rest of it come to mind isabella well, it, ferdinand it's certainly you know by april 1509 there's certainly no love lost there's you know there's there's a dispatch from from ferdinand and it's talking about the marriage of henry and catherine which hasn't taken place They'd rep henry had repudiated on his father's orders repudiated in in 1505 the marriage although secretly so yeah. i suppose it would have been easy to have then gone back on it later um, if that had indeed been the plan. But uh, Ferdinand certainly does not mince his words about Henry VII because he talks about the, the marriage portion. Um, mm. And so uh, 200,000 scudas minus 100,000 which had been paid mm. uh, on the marriage to Arthur. So there would be 65,000 scudas in money, 15,000 in uh, plate of gold or silver and another 20,000 jewels and other ornaments but he's he's completely scathing about the fact that Henry VII has not there's a whole list of if one were being charitable one would call them reasons but in fairness yeah. one would probably I think it's probably fair to say excuses why mm. that's not been paid so it talks about uh, the death of uh, its Queen Isabella mm. uh, the arrival of King Philip in Spain um, Ferdinand's retirement from Castile and the sudden death of, of Philip um, and that all of those things have created so many difficulties that it was beyond human power for them to be able to make those payments in time. <laughs> you know, Ferdinand is completely, you know, you read this and you get the impression that he thinks he's being completely reasonable because, you know, in fairness, he and his family have been beset by several tragedies. Let's, you know, mm. let's not, let's not be too uncharitable here. But equally, he had a whole diplomatic core. He could have made those payments if there'd been the, yeah. the will on both sides for them to do that it's clearly that they certainly seem not to trust each other at all there's no trust and what there's a, almost a, an irony of a, a parallel irony where in the 1490s where as we were saying earlier england is the chaser and spain is the the kind of hot sexy one that everyone wants to get on board with and ferdinand delays and he keeps his options open really right up until catherine gets on the boat <laughs> you know he's keeping his options open just to see if there's if there's a better deal out there which is why 
when people always say, oh, Catherine of Aragon knew from childhood that she was destined to be like, well, she didn't, she didn't, because it was never that clear that she would ever go until she until she got on the boat. Whereas, of course, in the next decade, the situation has changed for all the reasons we've talked about. And it's Henry keeping his options open. He hasn't got the decency to actually release Catherine and allow her to go back to Spain and no, no longer be an option. But as you say, he gets his son to repudiate the betrothal. He looks like there's overtures to other countries and other potential marriage considerations for the new Prince of Wales. And he is now doing exactly what Ferdinand did to him in the decade before. Mm. And, that, and of course, the victim in all of this is Catherine, the person that it really it matters to, less, less actually in the 1490s, but in, in the 1500s, the person that has to deal with the fallout of this is Catherine. Um, so no wonder she <laughs> jumps at the chance of a bit of friendship when a slightly dodgy confessor comes along. I mean, why do you think Henry was... And do you think Henry VII had completely given up on the idea of the marriage, or do you think he was just waiting to see? I think he was too wily to give up on it altogether. I think that he he was keeping his options open, but I think that he, I don't, I, you know, I don't think he disliked Catherine as a as an individual. You know, from from what we can understand, that he, he the relations were were fairly cordial between them, even though you know they were strained because of, of the payment payments, non payments, all of that. But I think that had he, I mean, it's said, isn't it, that when Henry and Catherine did marry, that it was apparently Henry the Seventh's last wish. Well, if it if it were, he kept it very well hidden. But, yes. I, but equally, I think he's too wily an operator to have to have given up on it altogether because yeah. even so even though we know that Catherine is much less of an attractive option mm. on the marriage market than she had been and also you know and, and I don't mean to make any uh, this sounds terrible given that she's only 24 but but also she's not she's not now in the first mm. flush of youth mm. we, you know you it's debatable whether she was a virgin or not but she was still not yeah she, she was not the the fresh-faced girl that came in 15 or what she was not 15 any longer you know things had changed significantly yeah. And so I think that her age may also have uh, played a part in it. The fact that she had, and also, you know, there were there were there were other younger princesses that were out there that might bring more to the table. But I think it's a case of you know, a bird in the hands worth two in the bush, isn't it? You know, you've got Catherine here, so you won't release that until you know that uh, that there's somebody else there. And but it does seem that any of the other marriage possibilities don't really reach a stage mm. during Henry the Seventh's lifetime where they become more than just possibilities. In, None of them seem to become a certainty. In fairness to Henry the Seventh, one thing I will say for him is I think so as you know, many will know, there were very mixed views in Tudor England, or not just Tudor England, but in the world of the Tudors, around teenage sex and whether it was a good thing or not we we tend to have this stereotype that you know in the in the in the 13th 14th 15th 16th century they got married very young no there was a problem having sex in the course and then you get the stories you, know, you get margaret Beaufort pregnant at 12 so it did happen but there were also views that teenage sex was very dangerous to the boy actually rather than than the girl and this had been reinforced argue well reinforced in the minds of some by the fact that Catherine's own brother who was 18 died soon after marriage to Margaret of Austria and 
many put that or some put that down to too much antics in in the marital bed now henry the seventh had agonized because he was aware of arthur's frailty we don't really know what that means frailty in that context but he was aware of it he had agonized as to for that reason whether arthur should be sent to live with uh, whether catherine should be sent to live with arthur at ludlow he'd advised arthur to consummate the marriage but then leave it for a few years so as not to run that same risk not to overdo it not to overdo it and now actually the irony is i don't think uh, and this is a conversation i don't think arthur and catherine ever had sex um at least not not fully and uh, but i believe henry the seventh thought they had yes and i think he blamed his reluctant decision to send catherine to arthur um i think he blamed arthur's death on that at least in part and believed that was his fault so i can understand why even once henry was 14 and was legally able to live with his wife catherine being much older being she'd been 20 at that point i could understand why he never approved the marriage to the extent that they would end up having to live together and share a bed which there'd be no real reason not to because i think he may have been worried about henry and and what teenage sex would do so that's the one thing you could say in Henry's defence as to why he delayed to delay, but I, I think it was far more than that as well, and there were far less noble reasons at play. I'm digressing completely. I um, I always think, you used to mention about um, Catherine's brother. I always think of him whenever I go, if I if I stay in a certain certain hotel chain, because I happened, when it was Prince Harry's wedding, I went to stay in, I couldn't stay in Windsor, I had to go and stay in Slough, and I had to get the, the only hotel room that I could, and uh, I'd been reading a biography of Catherine going down there, so now, if ever I go anywhere, like, and that's the point mm. I've got to when I got there, so that always reminds me of it. Anyway, completely digressing. Um, but, so, or, but then suddenly, you know, we've got to April 1509, uh, Catherine's in a state mm. of despair, her father's still arguing about the the english but then everything changes mm. what changes know. yeah um henry the seventh he's no longer goes to meet his maker yes kicks and, the bucket and then things goes change up to that spirit in the sky and everything changes just completely for catherine i mean catherine's fortunes change completely because she and henry are married, you know, less than two months later. Mm. So all of those, mm. so it seems that all of the obstacles that were in place right up until Henry VII's death have now just magically disappeared. So mm. I suppose for me, the most tantalising question is why does Henry marry Catherine as right. opposed to right. someone else? I think that's the question, isn't it? Like, uh, why so quickly? And why, why Catherine and why so quickly? What's really funny is years later, Henry decides, and I know we mustn't look at 1509 through the eyes of 1527, but years later, Henry claims he was basically forced and pushed into marrying Catherine in 1509. Because although Henry becomes famous for wanting to divorce Catherine on the basis that she'd slept with his brother, um, that wasn't the first reason that they gave. They and Initially, they thought, henry wolsey thought they'd be able to get quite a quickie divorce they didn't realize the extent to which catherine would go to resist it and they just offered the reason that, oh yeah it was kind of henry was a bit forced into it and that's that would have been enough apparently to not and it was a bit like mm, well, not really because he was like nearly 18 and he was a king and there was who, who was making him who was forcing him like who forces I mean, his, father's, the king? his father's died by this point 
his yeah, father's he... died so that's where you really get the whole it was his father's dying wish as if it was mm. a pressure on him and then interestingly a spanish source of around the same time says well that's ridiculous because henry's grandmother margaret beaufort who was a sort of quasi regent in this period she was a she they're saying she was against it so henry actually did it against his grandmother's wishes so he must have been it must have been his will now there's no contemporary source that says margaret beaufort was against it it's not impossible that it survived and that's what the spanish were referring to but it could just be made up by the spanish to try and counter henry's admittedly ridiculous notion or as we see today you know any any sort of look at between members of the royal family and there's you know yes reports of there being a feud or you know in some case they're probably true but um you know it, it could well have just been that they were seen at an occasion and weren't seen to be overly friendly yes. and that could be overinterpreted or, or it might be that margaret beaufort sort of says something someone like what's a bit quick in it is only dazzling yeah. just died what's yes. the rush yes you know um but and and that sort of somehow survived but i tend to think that if margaret beaufort i mean she wasn't she wasn't quite the sort of killjoy and 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 sort of tyrant that popular culture makes her out to be today but i do tend to think probably if she'd had considered opposition to it there would be some sort of contemporary well and she wasn't backwards and coming forward was she margaret Beaufort? So well i don't one, think so no one no. would have thought that if she had really ha had that level of objection then it would have been better known better publicized at court rather than yeah and it might even be that that meant the wedding didn't happen until after the coronation Yes, because I mean, once once Henry was crowned, and of course Margaret Beaufort famously dies just after Henry's crowned, as if she's done her final mission, which yeah. is to oversee the Tudor succession. Then she can finally rest and grieve her son. But the 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 like, kind a bit of like, like Simeon in the temple. Yeah, right. So it's kind of and and, and you know we are. Our physiology does reflect our psychology, doesn't it? Sometimes with with these sorts of things. But so hauntingly, Margaret Beaufort dies after the coronation. But whatever power she had, I suspect, would have pretty much ceased once Henry was crowned. So had she really been opposed to it, it might be that we didn't get this shotgun wedding yes. before the coronation, and we got one maybe six months after. But I think we can safely assume Henry wanted to marry Catherine which takes us back to your question well why why did he want to marry her and why did he want to marry her so quickly yeah I mean is it that he'd always had a you know torch burning for her well I think there's an element of that I, I mean it's tricky because we want everything we say to be grounded in in fact and evidence and of course we can't have evidence for that and nor can we assume that we understand what a 16th century 17 year old was thinking nor can we assume that a 16th century uh, 17 year old was like a 21st century 17 year old but all of that said i mean as we were saying earlier the 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 romantic position catherine must have occupied in his heart has to surely be some kind of influence here in 1509 yes Yes. And and let's face it, she was she was attractive as well. You know, she had contrary to a lot of the depictions that we see of Catherine in film or on television. She was she had fair skin. She had reddish hair, not not dissimilar to Henry's own complexion mm. and, and colouring. Um, I hesitate to mention the fact that she had a slim waist because I know that there's there's evidence about 
disordered eating, uh, certainly around her excessive fasting and all of that. But but equally, I think it is fair to say that she would have looked an attractive prospect to well, him. I, I think so. I mean, and I, I say that in my book, I say that, you know, Arthur would have been, we, we have to assume, pretty 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 happy um i mean it's tricky because that sort of famous portrait of catherine as a young woman it is th- there is a good case to say it's mary tudor and not as not as in mary tudor her daughter yes, mary yes. tudor her sister-in-law um and i don't i to be honest I'm, I'm agnostic i really want it to be catherine because because it's the picture i used in my book so it'd be far more convenient for me <laughs> i mean the romantic that. in me says that i want it to be catherine yes me too i want because i I want to have that image of what Catherine looked like at that time. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I think that's right. But I think she would have been this exotic older woman, beautiful and beauty in the eye of the beholder. And, and who knows what that means, but you know, attractive at least. And she'd have been comely in the flesh. Let's say. Well, I think she, I really think she would have been. And she would have had also an element of the tragic heroine around her, which is incredibly romantic, which means Henry, who wants to restore Henry, Henry the seventh's reign, which had been, I think, very successful, had not been on the superficial level so bound in honor and chivalry. Um and in that sort within that sort of medieval romantic way. Now, that's a bit ironic because actually Henry won his crown in battle and had to defend his crown in battle twice so three times so that's that's pretty chivalrous and that's that's you know you could argue quite romantic but it wouldn't have been seen like that he'd be he was the great administrator king henry wanted to be the great knightly king now that meant that meant um working with the high nobility bringing that back in the old blood of the realm but it also meant being that chivalrous knight that protected you know as a knight of the bath he would have sworn to protect the widows yes and and the vulnerable i don't think they would use the word vulnerable but you know well there's a widow she's this and she's this forgotten princess out in a tower somewhere that's all rescuing her and restoring her and the given the fact he loves her as well in his own teenage romantic way already we're getting the we're getting the beginnings of quite a strong case as to why he wanted to marry Catherine so quickly. But I think that that element of, of Henry's commitment to chivalry also gives us another clue in that what he wants to do is restore the mandate of English kings and declare war on France. And if you're going to be declaring war on the old enemy, you need a new friend. The best place to do that is Spain still. Ferdinand's sort of got power back over Castile. He could be... Uh, a good ally to have. Henry's probably too young and naive to realise how fickle I suppose, Ferdinand ironically, is. Philip's death does mean that, right. that that gives Ferdinand the way back into Castile that he had, that he'd lost. Right. If you want to take power off your widowed daughter, tell the world she's mad. <laughs> I know. Not well, saying she's in problem. Yeah, well, that's another, that's a podcast in itself. But, mm. um, you know, I, I think it's... It, it, it does mean that Ferdinand's able to get that power back there, isn't he? And so therefore, Catherine, politically, Catherine is now more of an attractive prospect than she had been a few years previously yes. at the death of her mother. She is, and she also is because of Henry's plan of France. You know, and that, and, and Ferdinand, I mean, the, the French and the Spanish are, are, England has this rivalry with France, but at this point in the 16th century, it's, 
it's a romanticized rivalry because France are a much more substantial power. Um, where Spain and France really are the power brokers of Europe and really are, particularly in the, in the decade before, the people that are determining the fate of Italy and protecting and bullying the Pope and all those sorts of things. England are, are, a, are a sideshow. But yeah, if Henry wants to go on a campaign to France, he needs someone like Ferdinand supporting him. Catherine reaffirms that alliance just by marrying Henry, and I suspect that's part of it. I mean, do you think then this is something that you can't have too much evidence for but henry was aware that he was that there wasn't a formal age of which men could take power in those days but henry's sort of on the cusp of it he's borderline do you think that having a wife and being crowned with a wife made him more undisputably a grown-up i i'm not sure whether being crowned with her was but I certainly think taking a wife so soon, because he's you know he's seventeen, he's very nearly eighteen, isn't he? And yeah. so he's he's wanting to to prove that he's a man, and so therefore having a wife would do that. And also, let's not forget that um, Catherine's also <laughs> is also convenient because she's on the doorstep. She's already in England. Whereas yeah. if he'd had to enter into negotiations to marry a, 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 another foreign princess then that would have been months of negotiations depending on where she lived there would have been time for her to get there and if she had a disastrous journey like Catherine's in 1501 where they you know ended up in the wrong place yeah. and, and all of that 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 would have delayed him further I think he was just impatient more than anything else I think he wants to take power Catherine's there I'm not sure whether actually being crowned with her at his side would really have made that much difference to that but mm. certainly he he wants it yesterday and therefore Catherine being in England, either being at court or, or nearby, means that he can execute that really quickly. And indeed he does, doesn't he? Because he becomes king in April 1509. And the, the wedding takes place less than two months later. It's on the 11th of June uh, and yes. it's at the Church of the Observant Friars at, at Greenwich. Which is not St Paul's. It's not St Paul's. It's, it's, almost, it's almost a bit hole in the walls as ceremonies go. Mm. Mm. I mean, why and do you think... Such a contrast, isn't it, between Catherine's weddings? Sorry. Such a contrast between Catherine's two weddings. Yes, yes. And, I mean, I suppose there there are lots of reasons for it. I mean, Henry VII had just died. They're wanting to to do this, you know, it's get me to the church on time so that they can get married, Mm. so that he can be crowned a married man. So I suppose you've diverted all of your resources elsewhere to the coronation that is going to yeah. be the opportunity for them to be seen as king and queen that's together. the spectacle isn't it yeah. yeah yeah so there's no real need for it so i think sometimes when people when people infer something into the fact that that wedding was was quiet that it mm. must have been sort of but it is almost 30 but I, I i don't really buy that i think that most of i mean certainly henry's subsequent weddings aren't great lavish public affairs no i, but, I think I, anne of cleves might be the only one actually yeah. ironically where there's any real theater to the wedding itself and of course she's the only other foreign princess that yes. he marries you know he, the other uh, wives are all english yeah. and so yeah. therefore yes you know you want power but they but he already has power over the nobility and so therefore yes. he's not having to put on the same level of diplom- diplomacy and same level of show that he does when he marries when he does marry anna please and even that is is still not anywhere near on the scale that no. um, Catherine and Arthur's marriage was in 1501. It's not, it's not Arthur and Catherine. No, that that is the that is the Tudor wedding to end all Tudor weddings, and it's pretty much the first one. Not quite. You obviously got Henry and Elizabeth of York first. I think um, 
it, it's interesting is that we talked about that contrast between Catherine's two weddings, but of course, and, and one being so grand and one being so humble, but the contrast in Catherine's marriages and in her position is also, um, is also huge because she marries Arthur straight away. There's awkwardness, dependency, you know, a, a confused role with a ill husband, isolated from the world, the center of gravity of, of, of the court and the kingdom to a limbo. Then with Henry, you've got this reversal where there's this rescue from the limbo. And I mean, I, I was doing so well, I've never finished it really, but some, I was trying to do some study around the, the value of the grants made in the first 10 years or so of Henry VIII's reign. By far the lion's share, the biggest endowment anyone gets is, is Catherine's jointure as queen. And I just remember the lavish lists of, of estates um holdings that are given to her and the trans whatever the truth about her financial situation post arthur she is now well and truly in the money you know that is a rags to riches story and how she must have felt so grateful to henry for that that nightly salvation Mm. well he's he's her rescuer isn't he Mm. Yeah, you know, whatever her situation was before, he's still yeah, and and that you know plays into the whole because he Henry VIII wants to be a courtly knightly king. He wants to be able to, you know, he he wants a second Camelot. He yeah. he wants all the jousts and all of that. And it you know it ties into that that romantic notion of uh, of his preferred form of kingship. How do you think the people responded to? I mean, had had they forgotten about Catherine anyway? How did they respond to Henry's choice to take her? Do you think? Well, it's difficult to say, but but you know, if you look at the um, the reaction on Coronation Day, they're both widely cheered in the mm. in the streets when they process because they they it's the still the old form of coronation where they spend the night before the ceremony at the Tower of London and the Tower of, and the procession takes place from the Tower of London mm. to to Westminster. So it, it's a, a a decent route for people to be able to to see their their king and queen, and of yeah. course. You know they're both, and they are both romantic figures, quite young, whatever. Um, the extent to which people have forgotten about Catherine, I suppose, is is debatable, because mm. she wouldn't really have been seen a lot. Seen, but mm. well, there weren't very many public occasions really uh, during Henry the Seventh yeah. reign after uh, after the the marriage of Arthur and Catherine. I mean, that's the the last great mm. event mm. of of that reign. Certainly after Elizabeth of York dies, Henry the Seventh. You know, it, mm. it it's. The court, the court is still there, and the court ritual goes on, but there's not the big public events, the the ceremonies. So there are there are few opportunities, not only for the people to see Catherine, but also to see the rest of of the royal family. But I mean that um, famous ode written by Thomas More on on Coronation Day. I I like to th- although yes, I'm, I'm not basing it on any real evidence, but other than the the anecdotal evidence about how they were received, mm. but it it does seem to sum up that whole thing of that sense of hope um, and a sense of um, prosperity overcoming mm. England, you know, that that sort of going from night to day, you know, because he, he writes, if ever there was a day, England, if ever there was a time for you to give thanks to those above, it is that happy day, one to be marked with a pure white stone put in your calendar. This day is the end of our slavery, the beginning of our freedom, the end of sadness, the source of joy. 
for this day consecrates a young man who is the everlasting glory of our time and makes him your king, a king who is worthy not merely to govern a single people, but singly to rule the whole world. Such a king will wipe the tears from every eye and put joy in the place of our long distress. You know, I mean, it's it's You've got to love a bit more, haven't you? Well, this uh, I know, I know that there's hyper. I know it's all hyperbole. Yeah. I, I, you know, I know that. But even so, it just sounds so beautiful and so mm. romantic. Um, you know, for Henry, and, and no less for Catherine. Uh, you know, because he goes on. She is descended from great kings, to be sure, and she was the mother of kings as great as her ancestors. Until now, one anchor has protected the ship of state, a strong one, yet only one. But your queen, fruitful in male offspring, will render it on all sides, stable and everlasting. Great advantage is yours because of her, and similarly is hers because of you. I mean, at the time, that must have been wonderful and certainly very heartfelt. But to us, because we know what happened with, with Catherine know. and Henry and the children, it's just so, so sad and such a, a you know, a legacy to you know a veil of tears i know i know i mean i just think i mean in the next bit as well in terms of dramatic irony <laughs> you know there's been no other woman surely worthy to have you as a husband well there will be <laughs> I mean... well there were other women that have taken us up but were they as worthy as Catherine? i suppose that's well, debatable. that is a podcast for another time that's for <laughs> sure i don't i i i can't handle mass trolling of Anne Boleyn fans so let's again disclaimer <laughs> the views just expressed or hinted at by james taylor do not necessarily represent the views of royal history geeks or any of our associated brands or products I just like to point out they're not necessarily mine either. I'm just I'm just <laughs> representing the fact that 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 was the seemingly the view certainly of Thomas More and at the time. Um, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that those other women weren't worthy. What I'm saying is that semantics of it. It's not that other women wouldn't marry Henry, but wouldn't necessarily be received in the same way that 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 marriage was in 1509. If if you could just troll Mary Queen of Scots now, that would be great. Then we'd have had the perfect triangle of Richard the Third, Anne Boleyn, and Mary Queen of Scots. I'm not trolling Anne Boleyn, and, and I'd, I'd love to go to Mary <laughs> Queen of Scots another day, um, because you know she's uh, she's again somebody that uh, I think is is quite maligned in history. But hmm. um, but yeah, no, I, I I certainly don't have any strong feelings for or for or against Anne Boleyn. I think both she and I don't want to. I, I know one might get splinters sitting on the fence too much, but I think both she and Catherine were. were had had more in common than, than one might think and i also think that they you know they uh, the you know the the stereotypical image of the wronged wife and the mm -hmm. you know the 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 harlot you know is it's is very far from the truth i mean it's far more nuanced than that so you know. yeah i mean ab absolutely absolutely and also both of those narratives that you know the wronged wife and the harlot they just remove henry's accountability yeah <laughs> which exactly. is exactly which, and you know, I, th I think he had quite a lot to do with it exactly so it, yeah exactly yeah. I, I mean i just think with those that you've got to love a more poem or any sort of humanist writing and at least you know more does well to by the most part keep the ancient greeks out of it which is which is an achievement for any humanist poet but it's hard not to, i know this isn't the case but it's hard not to believe that this these writings are a later creation 
written in light of what was to come and therefore dripping with dramatic irony in a sort of Shakespearean way. I know it isn't, but, you know, that whole kind of as it goes on, you know, she is descended from great kings, kings to be sure, and she will be the mother of kings as great as her ancestors. I mean, there's, it's like it's cruelly written well, as it's, a jibe. It's, it is making a, it's making it a hostage to fortune, if nothing else. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's just just knowing what's going to come um, makes you realise we. Catherine always knows from this moment there's pressure on her to bear a son. She knows that. Of course she does. That's what queens do. You know, what a shame that that's, that's the limited expectations people have, but that is the expectations people have. So she knows that. And that sense of pressure would always have been there. But to, and she knows she's not getting any younger, you know, that's the, again, weird thing for us to say at 23, 24, but that would have been there on her mind to at least some extent. But all of this theatre, these words of more, and other sentiments and the imagery of fruitfulness do you think that just really just laid that expectation on even thicker well i think that having the symbol of a, of a pomegranate as her personal mm. um a personal symbol didn't help either because you know it, it because when you see it it's not just a pomegranate which is not just the play on on the fact that she's from granada mm. um and that the the spanish it would be I don't, I'm not going to try and do an accent, but grenade. So therefore, it was a yeah. normal word. But it's also similar fertility, isn't it? Because you see, it's not just a, a pomegranate. It's slit open and it's seen as being mm. fruitful. And the seeds mm. are, are you know, falling out of it. And it's a, a symbol of, mm. of the, uh, not just her own personal fertility, but a fertility of the marriage and, a, and, a, and of the fecundity to come. Um, and so I think that that would have been reinforced every time. I mean, that, I mean, you know, she would have had that as her personal symbol. So at this point, it's probably seen as, I mean, I don't know that Catherine saw it necessarily like this, but it's seen as, as, a, as a, a prophecy and as a, as a positive mm, mark mm. for the future. But how hollow must that have seemed to her a few years later, having to see that every time that she went on, you know, on her barge or wherever she was and mm. see that, you know, in her, in her private apartments, in her chapel, to have seen that symbol and mm. to know that her experience went, you know, very much against that. Mm. Mm. I, I I know. And, and, and again, I know we're reading back things that happened later into 1509, but I think in terms of that sense of expectation, that must she must have remembered these days. She must have remembered these this this imagery. She must have remembered these words when as as she progressed through her life and things and things didn't 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 work out. I I think and then but I suppose we do have to remember that this day was a day of joy. And that that I think is where we need to come back to is for Catherine of Aragon in 1509, Henry's determination to to marry her write her into the coronation ceremony must have just felt brilliant absolutely yeah, brilliant it, it must have i mean it, it must it, i mean i know that that thomas more's writing is is real hyperbole about you know going from night into glorious day and all of that but it, it must it must have felt like that at least to a degree for catherine because she's been you know in this in this nomadic existence you know in in real limbo and now she has not only been given the money, but the position, the power, a, a, a young romantic husband. He's in harmony with her father. You know, after all of the 
after all of the arguments of her being caught mm. in the middle between her father-in-law and her father, all of that has has gone away. And so it must have seemed a real fantastic moment at that point. It must yeah. have seemed a real, you know, the future must have seemed bright. I know, again, that's another real cliche, but I, I can't think of another way of describing how it must have felt for her. I agree. I think she would have been aware, not just the brightness, but of the poetic symmetry of it. How her, her her marriage to Arthur had led to so much unhappiness. Now, as this new day was dawning, this new rain was dawning, she had a husband who was everything that Arthur wasn't in terms of probably his own virility. Um, she had riches, you know, she was as rich as Croesus in a way that she had not known. She never had a probably a personal command of a fortune in the way that she had. And she had been hidden for so long in the shadows. And she was now being brought center stage of all that would later happen at this moment henry the eighth in his coronation of catastrophes as we're calling it which of course was only a catastrophe for the people organizing it was a coronation of salvation <laughs> for catherine and what a special day that must have been that seems a, a good point at which to end i think it does on a high note on a high note well thank you james for your insights no thank you <laughs> oh well actually let's thank everyone that's listened both of you <laughs> all three of you all three of you and until next time see we will see so do leave us comments in where if you can i mean you won't if you listen to this on apple podcast something you can't but come back to the facebook page or something and, and leave some comments yeah we look forward to hearing from you and so until next time we'll see you then goodbye